Aloha! Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, host, and fellow nerd, Brandon Wilborn. Thanks for listening this week. The story portion of this episode starts at about the two-minute mark, following the recap and a brief announcement that will matter to you if you're listening to this as it comes out on September 1st, but if you are catching up from later on, it's not going to matter to you and you can skip forward. Last week in the Treasure of Capric, Tobin tried to treat Curian's wounds on the beach, only to be interrupted by a mysterious old man from the king's camp named Xander. While he agreed to lead them through the crags of the wild goats, he frustrated Noman with his strange manners. Captain Fallon made it across the lake, hot on their trail, but struggled to find any leads from there. This week I'll be reading from chapters 18 and 19, but there won't be any behind-the-keyboard segment or anything else this week. That water leak I mentioned last week is going to require me to tear up the recording area. Now the good news is I've focused on getting more of the story recorded this week, so I should be able to get a good bulk of the episode ready for next week. But if the remediation takes much longer than that, I may have to take a week off. And I haven't checked yet on the finalized recordings, but I've got a fan that has to be running all the time, so that may come through a little bit in the intro and outro. Now, if you're a subscriber on your podcast app, then it should download new episodes as they're available. But if you also want a notification of when I can get back to the regular schedule and what's going on with me, you can always join my email list at brandonwilborn.com. And when you do, you'll get a free story out of the deal. So hopefully that's worth it for you, and it's the best way to keep in touch with me. And I do personally answer emails. I apologize for any delays ahead of time, and, and really thank you for understanding that life happens and I'm not a highly paid professional at this podcasting gig. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Cabric. Chapter 18 A Secret Shared Despite all the warnings from the young fishermen, Fallon's troops had no trouble crossing the lake. His primary concern was that the rain would wipe away the monk's trail, but they found signs of a small camp on the far shore. Beyond that was a broad trail through the forest, marked by two short columns with sensors on top. The small signal fires they contained had run out of oil and burned out. The trail, however, had several signs of use. He quickly found areas of churned-up mud, including a clear hoofprint filled with water. Another few hours and even the ongoing drizzle might obliterate them. He dashed forward with his men to follow the tracks, leaving the boats on shore with their new owner. They followed the signs left behind by the careless monks until mid-afternoon, then the forest ended abruptly, thirty feet from several steep ridges and canyons that sprang from the earth without warning. They had reached the crags of the wild goats. Before him, Fallon saw three forks just beyond the main entrance. A smaller canyon opening was visible a short way to the north, but the trail disappeared with the trees. Fallon sent another man to scout out the smaller canyon and then scoured the ground of the larger entry. He crossed the gap between the forest and the crags repeatedly, looking for the slightest hint, but it was impossible to discern which path the Capricks had taken. He swore under his breath. For the first time since he was promoted to head a small patrol, he felt the eyes of his men watching him, scrutinizing him. They had to know he would keep them alive and bring them home after a successful mission, or else they would not respect his authority. Muna was right about leadership. 
It was like its own magic in the way it held sway over men, and he had always been a natural leader. However, he had always had the resources and information to make good decisions. Now he faced a blind decision with a small chance of success. The soldiers knew they lacked the provisions to wander in the maze of the crags for long, and even the newest recruit could see the potential for ambush in such a place. Any uncertainty on his part would make them doubt, leading either to desertion or death. The scout returned. There was no trail. The smaller canyon was more barren than the larger one. Where had they escaped to, and which path should he take? He had to decide. No, said the voice of doubt in his mind. You must draw out the decision without appearing hesitant. He needed more information. Maybe they had missed something while they hurried through the forest. Perhaps the monks were not being so careless. We missed something, he said forcefully. They must have made this false trail, then gone back and branched off on another path. There was no grumbling from the soldiers, no nervous glances from face to face. He held them, at least for now. He lifted himself back onto his horse and wheeled about. Keep your eyes open as we go back. Look for anything unusual in the forest. Do not hurry. We cannot afford to miss anything. While they traveled, Xander would not allow the monks to keep watch. They were in the king's territory now, and the monks did not know the land or the passwords. It meant most of them slept well when they camped, except for Tobin and Louise, who shared responsibility for watching over Curian. As far as Louise could tell, Reese had no stomach for it, and Noman was more interested in quizzing Xander about the king, so the job fell to her and Tobin as much from duty as from concern. Louise nursed Curian through the final hours of their third night so that Tobin could sleep. She admired his dedication to his friend and welcomed the way his concern relieved some of her own. If he weren't there, she would be the one needing relief from watching and worrying. Of course, unlike Tobin, she had confidence that the healers at camp could save him, if they could only get there soon enough. Though she knew nothing of medicine, she saw that he was getting worse with every passing hour. Her anxiety and dread spread with his illness. He had woken once in the first night, but only for a few moments, and by that morning he had developed a fever. He sweated even in the chill forest air of the first day. When they left the forest and entered the crags, she was grateful for the cold autumn rain that consistently fell. It might be the only thing keeping him cool, buying them time to reach the camp. Occasionally his muscles tensed, and he thrashed about as if he were in a fight. In the middle of the night he let out sudden, mournful wails that broke the silence of the wilderness. It sent a shiver down her spine each time. She sat in the rain outside of the cave they had camped in, holding his hand. It was all they could do to soothe his fitful bouts. It was a balm to her spirit as well. Alleviating his pain, even a little, gave her more hope. If it would help, she thought, I would cradle his body in my arms instead of just holding his hand. Of course, the others would stop that in a moment. I'll look after him now. Tobin said behind her. He crowded his way into the spot by the litter, leaving no room for her, and picked up the same hand she had held. Standing up, she saw his exhaustion, as if he hadn't slept for days. And maybe he hadn't. His blue eyes were bloodshot, and he could barely hold them open. Mud stained his robe up to the red and white belt he had reclaimed from Curian's ankles when they left the lake. Inside the cave, she could make out the other men moving around the small fire, packing up the bags. 
Briggs had only just returned from watching the canyon to their rear. You sure you don't want to sleep a little more? She asked, hoping he might leave her alone for a moment longer. Tobin looked at the top of a ridge to the west. It's past dawn. We'll be leaving soon. He let out a deep sigh and tossed one of the millions of pebbles strewn through the narrow canyon. It skittered across the mud and loose gravel like an escaping rodent. I'll get to sleep soon enough, whatever the outcome. We'll be in camp this afternoon, she said, trying to encourage him. After the journey we have had since leaving home, I anticipate nothing but more horror from any change in location. It wasn't a fair thing for him to say. The trouble had always come from Evasius's soldiers following them, and he knew that. But he was exhausted and angry, and she understood how hopeless he felt. They can heal him, she said, her throat tightening. I've seen the king's men do incredible things. Once there was a man caught under a rock slide. Why are you trying to persuade me? He asked as if harangued. I believe only God can heal him now. Because I hate seeing him like this too, she said, tears flowing freely. And because it gives me hope. And if your hope is misplaced? The scorn on his face bit deeper than the words. She wanted to hide from him, but there was nowhere to go. When you thought I was dead, I know it pained you. And I know you were all happy I survived. It's different with Kurian. He's still here, so hope is possible. I hope because I care about him. I've come to care about all of you. She wasn't sure if it was because of the pause in her words, but she saw the insight on his face. That's right. You have a secret. From the first day, you've kept it from us. But we all saw it on your face. You knew him already. She shook her head, looking at her feet. Yes, I saw your surprise and recognition. You may not have been expecting him, but you recognized Curian in Downriver Town. No, yes. Her face flushed, and she wiped her eyes. Yes, I recognized him, but no, I didn't know him. Tell me how, Tobin said. I've come to trust you. I believe the old king is not the man Evasius told us about, even though I don't know what sort of man he is. Tell me how you recognized my best friend. In ten years, we never saw a girl or a woman close to our age. How did you know him? I didn't lie to you in the tavern. The king told me to expect three capricks. You didn't tell us the whole truth either. She shook her head again. So tell me now, he urged. The king showed me Curian's face. Older, but it was him. How? She hesitated. She had held this in her heart for years as a private longing, always looking for evidence that it would someday happen. Now she feared that if she told somebody her secret, it might never become true. It was like a vision, she finally whispered. You're saying he showed you Curian's face? In a vision? Tobin sat back, looking humored. Why? He told me that the man he showed me would be important. Him and his friends. His smirk made her defensive. He said I would be the one to find him and bring him to our camp and that he would be among three Capric monks. Do you know why your king thinks he's important? Or for what? He leaned forward as he would when he discussed the treasure with Noman. She had piqued his curiosity. I don't know exactly why any of you are important to the king. He didn't give me details. 
she hesitated again. Could she share her secret hope? Tobin had been kind and caring to her from the beginning, and she knew he was a trustworthy confidant. If anybody could hear it with compassion, it was Tobin, whether he hoped for the same thing or not. She took a deep breath before letting it spill out of her heart. The king said he would be important to me as well. He told me that someday that man would bring justice for my family and others like them. He said that someday... Tobin nodded and raised his eyebrows. Nothing ever brings out Kurian's wrath like injustice. He stopped. I'm sorry, you had more to say. Someday, she said and closed her eyes, speaking quickly before she lost the courage. He said that someday that man would be my husband. Tobin's mouth fell open. Then he blushed. A grin spread across his face like a little boy who had just heard something scandalous. Louise shook her head and sighed knowing he was not going to take her seriously. She saw it coming. You know, he took some vows that will make that difficult. Or some other joke that trivialized everything about her vision and her hope. So now you think you love him? Tobin asked. It was a better question than she had braced for. As I said, I care about him. About all of you. But I don't know. Well, do you believe him? Who? Your king. Yes, she said, and combed her fingers through her wet hair. He has a gift for knowing things, and I did always believe it. Now I'm afraid I may have ruined it by telling you. Not about the marriage, that's the furthest thing from my mind. But I have always wanted something like justice for my parents. God will punish the ones who killed them. At the end, maybe. Her passions were instantly aflame. That's what you believe, isn't it? What happens until then? Do they continue murdering innocent people and selling their children as slaves? Or worse? The king promised that justice would come in this life through that man. She pointed at Curian, and the action stopped her cold. Suddenly, it was all real. Talking about it, admitting it, broke through the possibilities of someday and embedded it firmly in her heart. Seeing the face from her vision before her meant someday could be now. How could she doubt the king's word, especially with the vision to confirm it? Things would be put right. As for Curian, she already knew he was a man who would fight against evil. In time, he might become the man she would love. Chapter 19 The King's Camp There was nothing to see, no hidden clues in the forest to tell Fallon where the monks had gone. They returned to the beach at Hasselmere at dusk and hastily set up camp. One of the boats was missing, along with the young fisherman. A wise choice to run, he thought, while hoping the man met his greatest fear on the lake. He was the first to rise the next morning. His sleep was fitful after being in a bed for a couple of nights. He studied the pillars and the path that led away to the northeast looking for hints, thinking about the possibilities. It was impossible that the monks could cover their tracks so successfully in a forest when they had lived their entire lives on the plain, unless they had help. Some of the brigands must have been waiting for them. The young boys might be captives even now. The thought made him smile, although he wished they were captives in Polygam's dungeon, under Muna's supervision. Stepping away from the trailhead, he wandered back to the shore 
letting his mind work through his memory of the previous day. Had he missed anything? The foam undulating at the water's edge caught his attention for a moment, and then he turned left to walk around the entire landing area. As he reached the end of the beach and turned back toward the forest, he noticed a dense cluster of pines and behind them what looked like a large game trail. He pulled back branches and squeezed behind the trees, stepping into the forest. On the other side of the family of trees, the trail exited cleanly onto the beach, so that it was invisible from the shore. Curious. Nothing moved under the canopy of trees, but the unending hiss of soft rain was broken up into heavy irregular drips falling from leaves and needles. There was no sign of human use along the trail, but he followed it on a whim. The trail split a few hundred yards inside, with one leg heading uphill to the right. He turned with it and felt the hair on his neck stand up. Something he had not yet noticed pricked at his instincts. He increased his pace, pushing up the slope until his breath came in short bursts and his heart raced. As he came over the crest, he saw a small clearing in the trees that looked over the lake and the landing beach. Something gnawed at the back of his mind, a sense to keep looking, and as he inspected the clearing, his suspicions were confirmed. On the further side of the hill, hidden from the water, was a small, permanent shelter nestled among the trees. It had only recently been deserted, and as he searched the grounds, he felt as if hidden eyes watched him. No matter. Even if they had left a lookout, he had found a clue. He trotted down a second trail leading away from the shelter until he was certain it led back toward the game trail he had first discovered. This had to be the true escape route. Whoever was at this observation post had taken the monks onward, while a second party had created a false trail. He had to admire the skill with which they covered their tracks. It crossed his mind that he might be overreaching to create a plausible story that fit his discovery, but he felt certain in his gut that he was right. Rushing back to the beach, he surprised his men by bursting from the copse of trees. We're moving, he ordered, and the camp exploded with activity. Tobin was tired of moving, and it was only noon. The novelty of riding rather than walking had worn off for him back on the plains, as soon as he had realized that it involved pain and soreness. He couldn't seem to get used to the feel of a saddle. He was tired of riding and moving. Tired from watching Curian slip away from him, even before the hasslefish left a bony quill in his chest. Looking down at the litter dragging behind Xander, he could tell Curian's condition was deteriorating. He had turned from pale to ashen gray, and a light foam like that on the beach of Hasselmere gathered around his mouth. The sight of his friend lying helpless tugged at Tobin's heart and made him want to lash out at the same time. It just couldn't be real. It wasn't fair. However, he could not deny what his eyes saw. He prayed constantly over Curian, but he was losing hope. Even after learning about thaumaturgy and the miracles some monks used to perform, it was difficult to believe that God would do something incredible this time. Louise kept encouraging him. She had hope, and she offered it to him in the form of the healers at their camp. He admired her for it, but he was tired of that too. She had begun as their guide to an enemy camp, Somewhere between Smithfield and Dury, he had begun to think of her as a friend. But she was the one who told them to go to Rama. It was her advice that might end in Curian's death, and it was difficult not to blame her, despite trusting her intentions. 
she had also saved him from the sirens. Which made her what? He wanted to be angry with her while at the same time he saw something in her that he knew he should have. She was afraid and worried about Fallon and Evasius. However, she did not despair the way Curian did. She was concerned about Curian's wounds, but she did not share Tobin's doubts that healing was possible. Her confidence in facing their troubles was somehow stronger than his own or Noman's. In some ways, she was braver than Reese was. He couldn't figure out what it was, and her admission about Curian that morning only complicated things. After weeks of suspicion and hiding, he was simply tired, and he wanted to be finished with all of it. In the end, his judgment told him Curian's injuries were not her fault and that she had proven trustworthy, and his judgment rarely failed him. On their third day from the lake, he was also tired of the arguments between Noman and the peculiar old man, Xander. Each day he found creative ways to insult Noman and his faith, but Noman continued to pursue debates and conversation with him. Flustered, the dean would let his horse wander toward the back of the group and then come back abreast with Xander a short time later with some new topic. Perhaps the dean missed the company of somebody his own age, or else he was intrigued by the intellectual challenge. The only time that Xander really insulted him clearly was when he called him a viper the day before. That had left the dean in silence for hours. Tobin expected Curian would like him. To Tobin and Reese, he spoke more kindly, telling them that there was still a chance for them to avoid the dean's folly. They only had to turn about, he said. The twirling motion he had made with his fingers made it look like he was telling them to spin in circles, which made less sense than much of what he said. Ultimately, he was still telling them that their order and their faith were flawed. Something about the exchange got under his skin. Xander said it with the same calm confidence that drew him to Louise. That observation made him doubt his own sanity. The man was wild. Xander continued to lead them through the afternoon, hurrying only slightly when Curian began moaning and flailing in his stupor and would not be comforted. Tobin had no idea how he knew where he was going. Every turn in the canyon looked like any other. Then Xander made a hairpin turn to the right and led them down a narrow ravine that closed in the further they went. Tobin and Louise had to drop back from either side of Curian's litter and ride single file. As he looked forward, Tobin thought they were heading directly into a dead end. But suddenly, Xander made a sharp left turn. He followed and then looked back. From this side, the passage looked like it dead-ended again, and the remaining riders seemed to materialize from the straight wall of rock. Quickly, the crack spread out again into a natural amphitheater. On the far side, a broad stone arch spanned the only exit, and standing within the arch was a wooden gate studded with iron. It looked as sturdy as any he had seen in woodcuts of castles and forts. Tobin expected sentries were watching from the arrow slits on either side. Maran! a voice challenged from the gate. Atha, Xander replied and the gates opened for them to pass. They had found the king's camp, and Tobin suddenly remembered all the dangers they had imagined when they sat back in Downriver Town. Well, they've finally made it to the king's camp, but what exactly will they find inside? And how much more time does Curian have? Join me next Friday as the treasure of Caprick continues.
Hopefully. Hopefully next Friday. Again, no extra content this week. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope that this repair work can be faster than expected, but I understand how renovations go sometimes. Once it's done, I can get back to giving a little extra tidbits about the book and its background. Hopefully that's intriguing to you. And it just these are the times when a popular verse is helpful for me to think of. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, from Ecclesiastes 3.1. I'm going to have to ponder what that means in this context, and I'll let you ponder it too. But I got to run. I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments about the story, and you can send me a direct message or leave me a voicemail by going to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. Thank you again for listening to the show. I, I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying it, though, please give it a five-star rating, give it a review if that's possible, and then share the show with your favorite Fellowship of Fantasy fans. I, I'm going to figure out if I can fit more Fs in that sentence next time. That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Wilborn is as simple as you can make it. W-I-L-B-O-R-N. This has been The Treasure of Capric, book one of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright, Brandon M. Wilborn.